We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. You know, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the darkened hour. Hello, everyone, and hello, Adam. Uh, good afternoon, Richard. Afternoon. Okay, so one of the things this podcast gives us the opportunity to do is jump in in depth to the minute details, and this is kind of an example of that. We're going to focus on one of the supposed hijackers today, Zia Jara, the um, who who hijacked, who was the pilot of Flight 93 that crashed at Shanksville. Zia Jara was the only Lebanese hijacker, and he was not a radical Muslim in his youth, certainly, so has been the, the focus point of some documentaries on the Hamburg cell as he's become kind of poster child for radicalization, um, making the perhaps the biggest journey in that sense. Um, and maybe that's the whole story about him, really, the story of a fairly secular young man who falls into the wrong crowd, gets radicalized and does this horrendous thing, um, only to say that his family have never accepted that he was involved in these heinous crimes. Um, so that's what I'm going to be asking you about today, Adam. Is that the full story? You've just authored uh, an article on Jara. And what was it called? Uh, the Missing 9-11 Hijacker. Okay. And I, po I posted it to Medium. Okay, well, we'll link to that. So you've done a lot of research on this. I'm sort of vaguely aware of the most superficial details. So today, Adam's going to try and educate me on Zia Jara and if there's anything more to the story than immediately meets the eye. And um, in doing so, hope it's educational for people out there too. So Adam, I've just given the most bare bones that you take that up wherever you want then with um, tell us about this man, Zia Jara. Yeah, sure. Zia Jara is, incidentally is the most uh, mysterious character out of all the 9-11 supposed hijackers out of all the 19. Um, and he certainly doesn't really fit the mold. And I, in order to give it a much more clearer context, I'll uh, just be generalizing his background. And Jara was actually born in Beirut, Lebanon, in the Becca Valley, and was raised um, in the city of Tariq Jidda. And his parents were nominally Sunni Muslim, but they, but they lived a secular lifestyle. Um, Jara even went to a prestigious uh, Christian school called the French Lycée College de la Sagrasse. Um, and at a very young age, um, in his nominal formula of years, he always wanted to be a pilot. And uh, incidentally, his father, Samir Jara, um, vetoed that choice right off the bat. And quote, unquote, I didn't want my son to crash uh, 
considering that he was clumsy as, as a child. Um, so he settled for a course in aeronautical engineering and aircraft design at the school. Um, 1995, Jarrah actually leaves Lebanon and goes to Yemen. And he stays there with his uh, cousin Salim al-Jarrah. And a year later, Salim al-Jarrah and Zayad uh, moved to Greifswald, Germany. And, and they arrived there in April of 1996. And Zia Jara wanted to take a, a certificate course in German at the University of Greifswald. And in, if, you're, if you're a student uh, on a, a student visa, you have to learn the language before you take any uh, specific courses. And that's what he had to do. That's why he took the certificate course uh, in German at the University of Greifswald. He had to do it. But you know, at night he goes to parties, nightclubs, etc. And it was here in, in the, uh, the summer of '96. He meets um, Azel Sanguin, who uh, oh becomes his girlfriend over time. And within a few months of arriving in Germany, Ziadjar automatically uh, links up with a known uh, hardline Muslim, a known Orthodox uh, Islamist called Abdul Rahman al Makdadi. And Makdadi is known in circles in Palestine. He's a Hamas supporter. He funds money in Germany to raise to, for Hamas in Palestine. And at this time, he's also monitored by the German intelligence services, the BFB, um, which is the Bundesmacht für Wirkenschlutz. And in English, it's the Federal Office for the Protection of the Constitution. In short, I'll be uh, calling them the BFB. Um, now, at around this time, the BFE is also monitoring Ziajara. So as far back as 1996, the summer of 96, you have the German intelligence BFE monitoring not just the Islamists that are in Germany, but also Ziajara as well. Now, Jara starts to attend prayer meetings at the college uh, organized by, by al-Makdadi. Now, this right away makes you scratch your head. Now, here's a you know, a young man, Ziadjar, who's never known to be quite religious. And as soon as he gets to Germany, within uh, two to three months, he's meeting um, known uh, radical Islamists, which doesn't really fit well with his upbringing. Um, but in 1997, um, Jara leaves Griswold and instead becomes studying um, aerospace engineering at the Fakultschule at the University of Applied Scientists in Hamburg. Jara also meets with an individual who's only known as Marcel K. Now, Marcel K is a Muslim convert. He's also the uh, vice president of the Islamic Center in the North Rhine, Westphalia. And Marcel K is a close confidant of Ziad Jara. And because Jara always calls him before making uh, important decisions, um, for example, he, he, when he leaves to train in Afghanistan, he, when he applies for admission to U.S. flight schools, he calls Marcel K. during his pilot training. And shortly before 9-11, he calls Marcel K. Um, in contact and uh, never loses contact with him over the years. Um, in Hamburg, Jara begins a college course in aircraft engineering. And this is where he suspected to have met with uh, Muhammad Atta, 
at Al-Quds Mosque, which is a known um, Salafist mosque that preaches uh, Wahhabi Islam. Um, and this is where he meets supposedly Marwan al-Shehi um, and Ramzi bin al-Sheep. Now, Atta disappears uh, from his university over a year in 1997, giving only like a, a, vain, a vague explanation of friends uh, for his absence. Um, Western intelligence starts establishing that Atta and Ziad Jawa and Manam al-Shehi traveled to Afghanistan and they go into Tanakh Farms, which is one of the camps of Al-Qaeda. And in April of 1999, Ziad Jara has an unofficial wedding at the Al-Quds Mosque. This is the only time um, where he is monitored by uh, the BFE as meeting with, in the same room as Muhammad Atta, Mawan al-Shi, Ramzi bin al-Shi. And on, and this happened on April 1st of 99, happened to be also, um, uh, what's that holiday on April 1st? Uh, I forgot the name of the holiday, but uh, April, April Fool's, Fool's Day. Yeah, yeah. April Fool's Day, so go figure. But they have a wedding ceremony at the mosque, but they don't register the wedding with the German government, so it's not legally binding, by the way. But it's also filmed by the BFE. You could, there's pictures online where you can see Ziad Jari. He's in the same room with Ramzi bin al-Sheib, Mawin al-Shehi, um, uh, Syrian context. Well, Mark Moon, Mark Moon Darkanzali is there. He's actually uh, someone who has uh, financial ties to Muhammad Atta and Mawin al-Shehi. He keeps bank accounts open for them as well. Yes, yeah, so just to clarify, that's essentially three of the four pilots in the same room together. Mawin al-Shehi right. was... Flight 175 into the second of the towers to be hit, and Atoll was Flight 11 into the first one. That's right. And also, who's not at the uh, the, um, the Al or the Hamburg cell? The only the only suspected pilot that's Hani Hanjur, Flight 77. Now there's two cells actually. I want to make clear. You have the Saudis, Khalid Al Midar, Nawaf Al Hamsi, and Hani Hanjur out west and the Hamburg cell in the east of the United States. So you have the uh, Mal Midar cell, that's the flight, the American Airlines Flight 77 group in California, Arizona. And the Hamburg cell in New York, that's Ziajar Manuelshe Mohammed Atta in New York, New Jersey, and Florida, okay? That's and none, they, none of them are actually Saudis, right? That's quite, quite interesting, given the, um, right, well, the world, world, number well, of Saudis and the, the three of the four pilots aren't actually. That, that's correct. Only Hani Hanjour is a Saudi. Mawin um, al-Shehi, uh, I'm sorry, um, um, Ziad Jar is Lebanese. Muhammad Atta is um, Egyptian. Hani Hanjour is Saudi. Mawin al-Shehi, I believe. Uh, He's from the Emirates, isn't he? Yeah, right. I think United Arab Emirates. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, it's, incidentally, the, all the Saudis were muscle hijackers except for one, and it's Faiz, uh, Faiz Bani Hamad. And um, I think he also, too, is from the United Arab Emirates as well. Um, in October of 99, the, one of the members of the Al-Qud box named Saeed Bahaji, he gets married. And this is the only time where German BFE actually has video. Now, they have photo evidence, but this is the only time where they have video evidence. And 
History Channel act incidentally obtained this uh, video evidence uh, where Ziajar Mahan Alta and Ramzi bin Al-Sheib um, are at the, the wedding. Now there's photographs, but this is the only video evidence of itself. And Mark, also Mark Moondar Gonzali is seen at the video. And during this time, incidentally, Siajar never lives with any members of the Hamburg South. Um, later on, German authorities will say that, that Jara was never in any connection with members of the Hamburg South. And I'll quote, I'll use the quote, the only information we have connecting the three Hamburg suspects, Jara, Mawan al-Sheh, Mohammed Atta, is the FBI's assertion that there is a connection, end quote. And that's coming from a high-ranking police source within the BFE that was uh, interviewed by, um, by Carol Williams of the Los Angeles Times. And quote, we don't, we have absolutely no evidence of our own. I don't, I don't quite follow that, because if they were monitoring him and he was at the Outwoods Mosque, wouldn't that be a connection? Well, I mean, that would be, uh, a, well, what, would it be a connection to him inside the Outwoods Mosque? I would say if that's the only connection, that's really flimsy because he's okay. only there because of the wedding itself. So there's no, there's no sense of him connecting with Moran al-Shehi, Muhammad Atta, outside of the mosque and the wedding. That's correct. In Germany, by the way. Outside of Germany, there is a video of Muhammad Atta and Ziajar at Tadek Farms, and it's, the video is entitled The Will. Well, what's Tadek Farms? Can you just elaborate on this? Yeah, Tadek Farms is an Al Qaeda uh, training base um, uh, where they train guerrilla hand to hand combat, um, the use of like grenades, uh, AK 47s in close combat quarters. And this is in uh, Afghanistan? Yeah, this is in Afghanistan. Mm, okay. That's where, you know, there's other training camps as well, Al Farouk. Um, uh, uh, Al Tariq, uh, there's another, there's, there's four of them, but Tanak Farms is basically the biggest of them all. That's where Osama bin Laden goes, and there's like a video of him talking to a crowd sitting outside, and it's the only video in existence that shows Muhammad Atta, Ramzi bin Al Sheib, and Ziad Jara um, listening to uh, uh, Osama bin Laden talking. Now, it's also this was found by uh, the, the Marines in a uh, farm, at Tanak Farms, where they found the video called The Will in Arabic. Uh, it's translated to The Will, and there's no sound. Um, but it's also the only video in existence where Ziajara is filmed with Muhammad Atta. And yeah, they're not able to lip sync them, are they? I, you know, that's funny. You know, Supposedly, that lip syncers were brought in by um, the... Uh, the, I think it was um, either the Marines or the U.S. Army. And they tried, and they said they, they don't know what they're saying. Take that with a grain of salt. Yeah, lip read, I should have said. Yeah. Right, they look right. like they could be more to them videos, right. right? But that's obviously conjecture then. Right. There was a video, an old video years ago on YouTube, and I was very fortunate to uh, burn it at the time. Uh, and, and it shows a close-up of the paper that Ziajar was holding, and he's talking with Muhammad Atta. And at the back, written in Arabic, it's, I, I don't know what it says in Arabic, but translated, it's called uh, uh, Something of the Will. And there was a video posted on YouTube, it's not there anymore, it's on, I think it's on archive.org, where the video breaks down what, they're act, what the will is actually 
trying to say in regards to what Xia Jia was writing up. At the same time, the NBC later on did a video regarding Xia Jia's actual will, a video will of his own, and he's seen laughing in it. He can't uh, perform with a straight face. And there's somebody who's filming him, trying, telling, like encouraging him to become more serious. And what I'm trying to imply that is that, you know, this is pretty um, contradictory to the other video wills that came out later by uh, As-Sahab, the Al-Qaeda media arm, where the Saudi muscle hijackers did video wills of their own. Uh, one of them was Abdul Aziz Al-Amari. His video will was an hour one. And you could see right away these Saudis were very dead-faced. They, they, you know, this was videos that they did before the 9-11 attacks happened. And so, yeah, these, vid you know, these videos exist. I have 10 of them. You know, there's a couple that they did. Um, Al the Al-Sheri brothers, Whale and Waleed Al-Sheri, they did video wills. Um, and so, like, all of them, they were dead straight. But Ziad Jar's video will couldn't be completed because he just couldn't go through with it for some reason. He just didn't take it seriously. So there's a contradiction. What I'm trying to say there's a contradiction between the, the militant that he's trying to portray and his upbringing, which, you know, is contradictory to what we're seeing from the, um, the historical timeline that we're supposedly given by U.S. authorities. And, and it would coincide pretty well with German authorities where um, they have no direct link between Ziad Jara and the Al -Qud, members of the Al-Qudma to Hamburg, so, which is pretty, by the way, which is, um, you know, Al-Quds was a very uh, strict, orthodox, Wahhabi sect of Islam. Um, all the members there are very hardline. And it, 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 Zia Zhou tried to portray that. And, and German authorities really saw no link to it because he was hardly ever there. And he never lived with any members of the Hamburg cell in Germany either. There was only one time where he lived with uh, a hijacker, and that was Ahmed al-Hasnawi, and he lived with him in Maryland for two days in a hotel room. That was it. Yeah, so that there are all these connections. Like, he's clearly involved in whatever's going on, because he eventually right. ends up in Florida, not right. at the same place as Mohammed Attar and Marin al-Shehi, though, right? And then right. at various times, he's um, frequenting the same locations as the other hijackers. Right, and he goes and he visits, like, the apartments of Muhammad Atta, Ramzi bin Oshib, in, uh, for example, in October of 99. Um, Ramzi bin Shabib and Muhammad Atta live in a, an apartment that was founded by another Syrian contact, um, Muhammad Haydar Zamar, who's, who's friends with uh, Mahmoud Darkanzali. And these guys are big-time gun runners, they're drug dealers, they're, they have contact with an Al-Qaeda high-level contacts, but with Osama bin Laden, Ayman al-Zwahiri, Mohammed Atef, the military commander chief. These are the, these are the guys who are molding the Hamburg cell and forming them to become a, an organization within itself. Now, in October of 99, bin Shabib, Marwan al-Shahi meet with um, another Al-Qaeda, supposedly um, high-level contact, Mohammed al-Slahi. And he invites him to come to where Slahi lives in Duisburg, Germany. So Bin Shabib, Al-Shay, and Ziajara go and visit him there. Um, Kareem Mehdi, who is an apparent leader of the Al-Qaeda um, Ruhr Valley cell, who's sentenced to like nine years after the 9-11 plot, uh, forms a meeting with them. 
And so Bin Shabib al Shane's and Jar uh, followed the advice of Slide. Now, supposedly, this is coming from the, the admission of Ramsey Bin Shabib. Now, take this with a grain of salt because Bin Shabib is tortured. Uh, 78 times by the CIA. He's waterboarded 78 times. Yes. All this information that I'm telling you is coming from the information of Ramsey Bin Shabib. And he's talking because he knows Slahi personally. So this is what he, I'm just, uh, I just wanted to put that right out there mm -hmm. right away. So Slahi's advice was to go to, a, uh, and also Slahi too. He was uh, tortured. He's just released. Well, he disputes all this, right? He says right. he, he might have known Ramsey bin Al-Shabib somehow. That's, sort that's of correct. recalls him. Absolutely does not know the others. Has no involvement in Al-Qaeda. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just, this is, he thinks this is complete fabrication. That's, and he's, that's correct. I mean, you might want to come on to this in a bit, but he's out of Guantanamo, Guantanamo Bay now, right? He's, um, yeah. yeah, he's out now. Never I, charged I just have anything. To, right. And I just have to apologize because I should have uh, stated this a little bit earlier. Um, yes, yeah, Slahi, this, and, and by the way, the CIA actually states at the end that Slahi and uh, Abu Zubaydah, by the way, another high-level supposedly, they had no relevant information. So, yeah, now, right, when he's released. Which, which but, kind of implies that the story we have and that the one in the commission report about how the Hamburg cell came together isn't true in, in its entirety. Right, which I'm, which I'm telling the listener too, take this with a grain of salt, because it's the only information that we have regarding the Hamburg cell. It's coming from the admissions of people who they tortured mm. right away. Um, but after, after Atta, al Shay and Jarrah go to Tannic Farms in Afghanistan, and they come back to Germany, they all report their passports stolen. Now, they're doing this so they could cover their tracks uh, that they went to Afghanistan in the first, in the first place. Now, the old ones bore the evidence that they went to Bin Laden's camps was stamped that they went to um, uh, Kabul in Afghanistan. So they apply and receive new passports and, and they all get new passports. In January 1718 of 2000, uh, Muhammad Atta and go back to Afghanistan. They go back to Tannic Farms. Now this is significant because this is, what I was bringing up to you earlier, that this is the only time where they are filmed together recording their wills, their martyrdom wills in Afghanistan. The, like I said, the film has no sound and the footage is significant because this is the only time where we see Atta and Jara together. Now, the only video evidence that we saw Jara before this was at the wedding, um, uh, Saeed Bahaji's wedding. And, but they're not together, talking together, just in the same room. This is the only video where they're seen together and talking to one another. It's the only video in existence. And, and this is the only time where they're filmed at the same place at the same time in Afghanistan. So in other words, besides the testimony of, of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ramzi bin Shabib, um, Abdul Aziz Ali, all the rest of the people who were charged with the Nile attacks at Guantanamo, along with Slahi, along with Abu Zubaydah, these are all people who have been tortured endlessly by the CIA. And they admitted this all under duress and torture. And Ziajar actually leaves Afghanistan, goes back, and is briefly detained in Dubai, at the Dubai airport. Now, some reports will suggest that this is only because he's already on a U.S. watch list. I think this is true. I think they've been monitoring this guy even because German intelligence monitoring him in 96. 
So Can you I give think... the date for this, Adam? Because there's been a lot of confusion about whether this was January um, of the year 99 going into 2000 or 2000 going into 2001. There were conflicting reports about that. What's your... Right. Now, I... Yeah, this is, this is going to be tough because supposedly it's January 30th of 2000. Okay, yeah. That's, I now, think that's the date that got, like, I found got settled on after the contradictory reports. Right. Well, I'm I'm go- I'm just going by what Leb like what Lebanese authority. Now, I I don't think they're going to lie about it, you know, because they actually wanted him yeah. detained at the airport. They because they, they saw on his passport supposedly that they, um on his passport was a a picture of the Quran, Ziyadjar, like in a picture of the Quran. Whether he wanted to pose himself as a Islamist or whatever, or whether he was, um, I mean, that's pretty obvious. I mean, why would he put that there, knowing that you're going to have uh, problems entering another country, um, who you know, try to not have Islamists in their yeah. The, the CIA denied that they had any foreknowledge, but it came out from the country's authorities that um, that's where the instruction had come from about Jara. And it seems also Kevin Fenton makes the point that it's a it seems like a, a cut and paste story about that he was acting suspicious at the airports so that they picked him up. It seems like a story that's um, covering up for the deeper intelligence. Um, reasons that he was picked up because it, it's um, a story that's used in for other uh, suspicious characters at different times. So it seems yeah, to be getting caught and paste about it. Yeah, exactly. And also, this also brings me up to another instance back in in nineteen ninety uh, in the ninety three bombing. Now, in nineteen ninety two, Ram, Ramzi Youssef was entering New York, and he was with um, Muhammad. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Ahmed Ajaz. Hmm. And Ahmed Ajaj actually in a suitcase had an Al Qaeda manual. He had bomb making manuals in his suitcase, and the authorities saw that they detained him. Meanwhile, Ramzi uh, Youssef didn't have anything on him. He had a you know a faulty passport, but um, he was actually let go. He was in, he, you know he was he went to Brooklyn, and you know he was involved in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing plot. With Jara, it's almost similar to that story because here's a guy in his in, supposedly. Uh, Lebanese authorities open up his luggage and they find religious materials, hmm. uh, you know, that you know, show that he was a, you know, in Afghanistan. And he has this um, passport with su- uh, the Quran is superimposed on his passport. So in other words, what I'm t- I think he's trying to show the authorities, hey, I'm an Islamist. Well, do we and, see that again with um, particularly with Muhammad Attar's luggage on September 11 itself, where he checks in a bag, right, which was on right. the plane. And the bag is like basically everything you would need to be a terrorist from pilot uniforms to... Um, manuals on flight navigation to and there's even a letter in there about like how to confront the task they have ahead of them and it, you know it's it's all it's something that it's it's bizarre right there's no because i mean what was he even going to do with those uniforms when they were checked in how did they play a role all these kind of questions come up so you do see people acting in a way that seems counterintuitive uh whilst going through airports right in other words what they're trying to portray themselves as is that yes i'm an islamist in other words, if they were actually Islamists and trying to conduct an operation as big as 9-11, why would you leave a paper trail? You Unless don't take terrorist paraphernalia in your bag when you right. go to the airport. Um, right. Yeah, and we probably will talk about like Atoll's story a different time, so I don't want to go too much into that. I want to focus right. on Charles, but yeah. The, so, but I think the essential thing to take away from that point, it, it, it seems conclusive that the CIA were monitoring him um, in January of 2000, then, and prior to that, but definitely... From that point on, he seems to be, um, sorry, January 2001, because he's picked up at the airport. Correct. And, I, you know, I, right. And I think with, 
with the Lebanese authorities that they wanted to detain him. So they called the State Department, whoever they called, and the State Department said, no, I'll let him go and we'll monitor themselves, mm. um, which I think is true. Um, now, the CIA states that, no, this was not true, but it came out later that it was true, actually. The CIA did monitor and it would fit well because the CIA at this point was also monitoring people at the Malaysia summit meeting. Yeah. Uh, that's Khalid Al-Midar, Nuafa Hamzi, Benti Benchibib, and others. So why wouldn't they, um, you know, monitor uh, yeah. other Yeah, I mean, this is something we talked about in the series, but essentially if, if the CIA, well, we, we know they continue to track Khalid Al-Midar and Nuafa Hamzi as they came into the West Coast of the United States coming out of the Malaysia summit. And what we're seeing also is it seems they had the other hijackers too. It seems like through Ramsey bin Al-Shabib going back to the Hamburg cell and through Zia Jara that they, they picked up the Hamburg cell who were going to Florida then. So right. we suspect uh, a similar level of monitoring. Sure. And I think the, you know, I don't think they were alone either. You know, you've had other intelligence apparatuses like, for example, the Saudi GID, which is the General Intelligence Directorate. Um, they're monitoring uh Al-Midar, Al-Hazbi, Hani Hanjur, Al-West. And of course, when Ziad Jar, Muhammad Atta, Mawanashi entered the United States, the Israeli Mossad are monitoring them in New York, in New Jersey, and Florida. Just for example, not just that one agency is involved, there's numerous mm-hmm. intelligence. So they're all watching from abroad and within the United States. But needless to say, I, on January 27th of 2000, Ziad Jara enters the United States and he enters on a tourist visa, which was issued to him in Berlin on May 25th of 2000. He immediately flies from, uh, to Venice, Florida, and he arranges to take full-time lessons at the Florida Flight Training Center in December of 2000. He attends also uh, flight, uh, Florida Flight Training Center in Venice, Florida, where he takes lessons in a Cessna 152, and according to the FBI, he finishes his training there, gets a certificate in December of 2000. Now, what I'm trying to say is also, now, Ziyachar is also training on his own. He's not training with Muhammad Atab, Marwan al-Shayi, because they're training as Huffman Aviation. Um, and they get their certificates in December of 2000, incidentally, as well. Um, but Ziyachar is always alone at this point. He's never with the Hamburg cell. He never meets them until later on. Um, he meets Ahmed al-Haznawi um, in 2001. He rents um, a room with him um, in Maryland. Remind me who he is. Ahmed al-Haznawi is a, one of the members of the hijacking team aboard United Airlines Flight 93. Okay. Um, and also, um, he stayed just a week prior to the September 11th attacks, he rents a room at the he rents a motel room at the Days Inn Motel in Newark, New Jersey. And meanwhile, the rest of the Flight 93 hijacking team—that's um, uh, Ahmed Al Nami, Saeed Al Gandhi, and Ahmed Al Haznawi—all living in the same room. Now, Ziyadar pays for that room as well, pays for it in cash, according to FBI transaction records. Um, and Ziyadar actually before that. Before he rent, oh no! During this time, he actually rents a car and he drives to Maryland, and he's actually arrested—not arrested, but he's detained for speeding. Now, and which he, is he's, pretty. Yeah, go no. Go so, so you, you finish what you're saying there, and I'll make my. 
actually, he, he's detained for speeding, and he's going, and he's actually in a lane that goes 35 miles an hour. According to the state trooper who pulls him over, he's going 94 miles hmm. an hour. So he's one of five of the 19 who were detained for speeding at some point. That's correct. In fact, right. yeah, there's a couple of people who are caught for speeding. Uh, well, I, I think there's five. Am I, am I correct about that? I, you know, I, I, I only know I'm th- him. I, I know Wafa Hosby, I believe, was caught for speeding once. Um, I, I don't know the rest. That's, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pause. Oh, audience, hello. I'm going to pause here and check that I'm correct about that. Okay, I've just read about this on History Commons, and I'm not entirely clear if it's um, the number is four or five. From just from the way the the paragraph is written, um, it talks about Ziyajar and Muhammad Attar, and then three other. But I'm not sure if Muhammad Attar is one of the three. But four or five hijackers were stopped for speeding. Now, perhaps you can sort of fill me in on an American angle on this, Adam, because like where I live, you would have to drive past the police station at 90 miles an hour, honking your horn and pulling a sign at them to get stopped for speeding. Okay, like it's really hard to get stopped for speeding here, um, and that might be a peculiarity of the country I live in and it might be very different in the United States I know there's a like a low speed limit on the freeways there and so on but it, it does seem to me that whether it's four or five out of 19 um, from a group of people who are supposed to be keeping a low profile that you know it's 20 to 25 percent right and that seems obscenely high for any random sample of people to be stopped for speeding uh, maybe it's not in the United States I don't know but, but what's your take on that well, it, it, it's, it's quite uh, surprising considering that when he gets pulled over, it's, it's two days before uh, the 9-11 attacks, okay? It's on September 9th. And he's actually on Interstate um, 95 heading towards Maryland. So the speed, the speed limit there, as far as, you know, uh, top speed is uh, 35 miles an hour. The state trooper, whose name is Joseph Catalano, pulls him over because the Ajar is going 91 miles an hour. Um, if you wanted to lay low, if you wanted to stay low um, in regards to, uh, you know, completing the biggest operation in your life, um, you would not be going 60 miles an hour over the speed limit. No. Maybe the psychological reasons for that, if you know you're going to die. Um, but it's also the case that his... Um, even though he's on a watch list, nothing triggers about that in the state trooper's system, right? So he could have been picked up at that point as a potentially dangerous terrorist. Sure, because on a CIA watch list. Absolutely, why? Because he was already detained in, uh, at the United Arab Emirates in Lebanon. Uh, um, I'm sorry, not Lebanon. United Arab Emirates, in regards to uh, him having. Uh, a superimposed Quran on his uh, passport and other uh, religious materials were found in his luggage. I mean, of course he was on a watch list. But when Catalano issued him a ticket, he ran him in the database, came back clean. Hmm. Um, Now, either you could say, uh, of course, one who's listening to this uh, podcast could say, well, Ziajar may have known this in, in advance, knowing that he can get away with speeding 60 miles an hour, not be detained or that he wasn't aware that intelligence apparatus could be uh, covering his tracks and um, eliminating any type of uh, uh, 
infractions he may have in his background in his uh, profile. That could be the case too. We'll, I mean, we'll not know with the information that we have public available now, does it suggest the case, but I mean, you can see how conspiracies can arise from this. But I would just say be careful and refrain from uh, using speculation as a form of evidence. Mm, sure, so, sure. sure, I mean, uh, but yeah, I mean, it does, it does make you think, like, how can this guy uh, become um, so obvious to law enforcement by doing something so uh, ridiculous as speeding over 60 miles an hour? Well, it raises the question of, um, is this something kind of like a crazy action or, it, you know, it, it harks back to the Lee Harvey, Lee Harvey Oswald thing of going around saying, I'm Lee Harvey Oswald and I want to shoot Kennedy and, and so on and creating this kind of image right prior to the event. I mean, you see that kind of behavior of Mohammed Attar trying to rent crop dusters to gas people with and so on, you know? Right. Uh, right. It's, it's almost at times where like, especially with Mohammed Attar and Ziyad Jarrah, where they wanted to make their tracks known. Um, yeah. That could be the case also if you wanted to look at deeper, if you want to look deeper at Khalid Ahmed or Nawaf Hazmi. You know, they were staying with an FBI informant they were renting rooms from him. But meanwhile, at the you know, at night, I mean, according to neighbor testimonies uh, in FBI memorandums, uh, they were like, you know, driving in limos, people were picking them up, they were loud, listening to yeah. loud music. So, in other words, they weren't, they weren't laying low, in other words, uh, yeah. these people, almost like making a spectacle of themselves. Okay, so, so I, have a, I have a few questions about the story so far, but do you want to proceed on with the narrative first? Well, if, if I could just say a little bit more, because during the final days before 9-11, um, Ziyadjar almost makes like a track, and, and this is a story that really doesn't get much airplay, but something that we've hinted on in our series. On uh, September 7th, when he was staying at the Mona Lisa Apartments in Maryland, it was reported by the FBI after 9-11 attacks that in this apartment that Ahmed al-Haznawi and Ziyad Jara were staying in, they found this um, cardboard replica of a Boeing airliner cockpit in the apartment. And um, that they, they, it was, they had panels and, you know, it was made to look like a cockpit there. If you, in other words, you know, they were, why would they leave it in the apartment, right? Why wouldn't they just destroy the evidence behind them? And almost like, you know, he's teaching, either either Jar was teaching Hasnawi about the plane or Jar Jar was practicing how to be in a plane. I, I don't know. I mean, you go figure. But um, on so, uh, you know, like days later, they would go to uh, New Jersey and stay at the Days Inn Motel. And that's where they were staying in. And then on September 10th, uh, Ziad Jara and Ahmed al-Haznawi go to Springfield, New Jersey to use a computer at Kinko's. And they stay here at 58 minutes. This is according to the FBI timeline, uh, financial transaction timeline. And they paid for this computing using Ahmed al-Haznawi's um, credit card. On this evening, also, this is very important. This is going to be important later on in our talk. Ziad Jara actually spends his final evening writing a letter to his girlfriend, Azel Singui. Now, he writes the letter, uh, and the letter is public. It actually, uh, it's in my uh, Medium article, and The Guardian actually posts. It's the only publication that posted. And the letter is widely interpreted as a suicide note, but it's very vague. And the messages are vague. In the letter, it's stating that 
he'll see Seguin at another time in the future, in other words. So, but the letter itself doesn't reach Azel Seguin because by the time the letter is actually mailed to her, um, she's actually um, she's actually at the German authority. She's actually putting out a, a missing purchase, a missing person notice to Ziajars because you can't get in touch with him. And they, by that time, they find out what happened, and she's a witness protection. And by the way, what happened with the letter is that the address is spelled wrong. Hmm. So, which is pretty uh, mysterious because, you know, if you're writing uh, a letter to a person that you love so dearly and it's the final letter of your life, you think you would get the address correct. But no, the address yeah. is incorrect. There's nothing so, overt in the letter, right? There's nothing that says... No. Because she's completely... No one's ever suspected that she was in any way involved in any of this. Right. Right? She's, right. she's no. not radical at all. Right. Uh, she's Turkish, kind of right. relatively secular. Um, well, yeah. Yeah, really quite a secular Muslim. And, um, yeah, so at no point does um, Jara tell her, yeah, become involved in this thing, and we're going to do this this operation to take down the great Satan and all, all the rest. It's, there's nothing like that in it, right? There's just... Right, um, the letter... Yeah, the letter is very vague. And the letter uh, has uh, almost like this vague uh, premonition of seeing her in future. But, yeah, there's nothing really revealing about it in terms yeah. of the operation. So he's not going to tell her what he's doing, in other words. Uh, but at the end of the letter, he says, um, he states that um, I don't expect you to understand this great thing that we're going to perform. But um, but that was basically about the only hint he ever drops to her. Hmm. But if you, if you read the letter, it's just like, it's basically telling her that he loves her and um, vague references of seeing her in the future. But yeah, well, I don't I think... Will, he, well, we'll see, we, I will see you in time or something, he says. Right, it? something like that to that, to that extent. Um but the letter was returned to the United States by the Postal Service, and it was discovered and delivered. Uh, it was actually uh, intercepted by the FBI. Now, if you want to play the speculation game, maybe that's exactly what he wanted all along, the letter to be publicly known, uh, whatever, in regards to maybe saying in the future, um, if it ever came out that he was never on the plane. I mean, that I, I'm willing to go into with you in regards to Flight 93. I've always stated that um, he wasn't the pilot of Flight 93. And yeah, well, well, I guess we'll come on to that bit in a minute. It, but it is, now I think it's kind of strange that he didn't sit down with a video camera and clearly record in English his reasons for doing what he did. Right, for sure. And, you know, I, I thought about that too. I said, well, why didn't he, you know, give her a more direct answer? Like, um, and his wider family, because his family never accepted he did it. They, to this day, they don't believe he was involved. To, yeah, that, that, that's exactly right, Richard. In fact, to this very day, in fact, they just did a recent interview of his, um, uh, his father, Samir. And mm -hmm. um, I forgot the name of the publication that did the interview. But uh, during the interview, they went to the house. And they said the father's on medication. He's still a nervous wreck. Even years later, you know, we're talking 18 years later. And um, the father still states that, you know, his, his son, because um, they think they, they have a theory that his son was on the plane and tried to dispel the hijackers from hijacker plane. He was killed. Sure. But they, they do not believe for one second. So, so let's that. talk about the plane then, if we're okay to move on to that. So the, the commission sure. report has it that uh, he, oh, I've just missed my place in it. Hang on, sorry. We'll cut nope. this bit and go back to saying, um, I probably won't. Could it actually be more authentic? The commission report has him, um, Jara's in seat 1B, 
um, closest to the cockpit, and the other hijackers were in 3C, 3D, and 6B, um, and he checked in. Um, I think he, well, all four men checked in at between 7.39 and 7.48, so he seems to be well-placed on Flight 93, okay? Um, well, so, well, well, if I can make a correction, Richard, yep. he's well-placed at Newark Airport. Right. Not in the plane. Right. I, 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 I fully believe he was at the airport. Okay. There's, See, you think it, that this is like, and I think this is really, you know, one of the most interesting cases that you make around 9-11. And maybe Nelson Martins is along this line. I don't want to speak for him. He's not here. But maybe he's interested in this kind of area too, right? That Jara either wasn't on the plane or possibly didn't fly the plane or possibly wasn't who he's perceived to be. And I think there's interesting reason to look at all those things. Okay, so let's yeah. start with that then. Of like, why do you think that he might not have been on the plane and might not have been the pilot? Sure, two instances. Obviously, here. if he wasn't on the plane, he wasn't the pilot. But let's look at perhaps, right, you know. right. Let's go with that. I think that's a great place to start. Actually, there's two instances as why I don't believe. Now, I just want to make this really clear. What I'm applying here is speculation and very light speculation. This is not something that's delving into the fantastical. Okay, this is going by why I feel that he wasn't on the plane. Now, for one, when Flight 93 took off and it was hijacked, there was more phone calls on that plane made than any other flights. Now, I know there are people that say the phone calls can't be true. They dismiss phone calls that work at that flight. But if you look at the phone calls, they contradict the 9-11 official narrative. That's what people want, you know, of the truth community. Um, that's why I think they make this mistake. The people who don't believe that they were hijackers or the phone calls yeah. were made. So, so here we have another incident of like what we've talked about with no plane hitting the Pentagon. It, Correct. You know, fine if you want to believe that. But the existence of that narrative detracts from people asking who was on the plane and why was the CI protecting the hijackers around that plane. And similar with um, the 93 flight then, the... I can't speak to the technical details, okay, um, about the, the whether mobile signals on air phones, um, but there's a lot being made of the fella, I, I should have checked his name, it's Mark um, Bingham? Bingham? Yeah, because okay. he answers the phones, he phones his mother and says, hello, this is Mark Bingham, which is, of course, it's an unusual way to speak to your mother, but his mother said that's just what he did because he worked in, um, he worked in a, an area where you gave your full name when you answered the phone. It's kind of force of habit for him. Um, and, you know, of course, if you're going to fake a phone call, you probably, you would notice that was a very artificial way to do it, right? So if it was, um, but again, whatever you believe about that, it, believing the phone calls are entirely fake detracts from what was said in them, which contradicts the narrative, right? So carry on, Adam, with what, how do the phone calls contradict the narrative? Right. There were, there were actually five phone calls that contradicted the narrative. Now, one of them was from Tom Burnett. Uh, I'll explain each, each phone call. Tom Burnett made several phone calls to his wife, for example. And one time he got through and he says, honey, um, uh, we're being hijacked. And there are three men. Okay, there were three men. Mark Bingham actually calls his mother. And he explains to her, mom, we're being hijacked. There are three men on board. Jeremy Glick called his wife. And he was a lot more specific. And his phone call, which is uh, very important because his phone call gave an actual physical description. He's the only one that does this. And he says that he called his wife and he says that there were three men, all the men were dark skinned males and all three were wearing red bandanas. Okay. 
Cece lies, calls her husband, but the husband's not home. She leaves a message. She says, um, honey, we're being hijacked. There are three guys on the plane. Todd Beamer actually tried to call his wife and he couldn't get through. And he's rerouted to a, a GTE phone operator named Lisa Jefferson. And he tells her, and his call lasts a long time. He's the only call that lasts, I think, 15, 20 minutes. And um, he states to her that we're being hijacked. There were three men on board. Now, okay, if you want to say one person, two people got it wrong, that they were three hijacked instead of four, you have five phone calls now that are specifically telling you that there were three hijackers on board. The other instance is this. In 2006, in the Zacharias Musawi trial, Flight 93 has the only cockpit voice recorder that actually was recovered and worked. All the other flights, uh, the cockpit voice recorder was too badly damaged, supposedly. Um, the cockpit voice recorder was found with the Pentagon, but it was too badly damaged. But the cockpit voice recorder was not found at the World Trade Center, either from Flight 11 165. Oh, suspected, not, not found. Okay. The, the audio recovered was actually played in a separate room for the victim's families attending that trial, the victim's families of Flight 93. And the audio was only played once. And even though the audio is not public, the transcript is actually public. Okay? And why is this important? If you go all the way at the, the ending, and I think it, if it's on wiki, uh, I want to say wiki pages or something like that, it, it posts the whole transcript. Now, at the very bottom, at time, I want to say timestamp one, uh, comma, zero, zero, comma, 37. Yeah, it's okay. We'll link to it. It's not long. Okay, so you won't right, have any trouble not, finding right, what you're referring right, to. Right. And, and at the bottom, there's a person sitting next to the pilot. And while the passengers are ramming the food cart to the door to try to get into the cockpit, the, 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 the person is saying, Saeed, up, down, the plane. In other words, put the plane up and down to throw off the passengers. That's exactly what happened because according to um, the flight data recorder, the plane actually makes herky-jerky moves up and down. And this is actually echoed by um, uh, another plane that actually saw the plane making uh, movements. And it was actually a, a private plane that actually was nearby. It was being contacted by, I think, Indianapolis ATC at, the, at that time. And they were actually saying, uh, can you see the plane? They saw the plane making herky-jerky movements to the left and right, up and down. And this was to, to thwart off the passengers for plane. Now, who, who is Saeed? Well, there is a Saeed on the plane. It's Saeed al-Ghamdi. According to the 9-11 Commission, Saeed al-Ghamdi is one of the muscle hijackers. Also, in, in um, Burnett's phone call, Tom Burnett's phone, I mean, um, uh, Tom Burnett's phone call, he's stating that there were three hijackers and they were all dark-skinned males. Ziajar is not dark-skinned. Yeah, yeah. Sa Saeed al-Ghamdi, uh, Ahmed al-Haznawi, and Ahmed al-Nami are all dark-skinned. Yeah. And um, if they're saying that they saw three hijackers, now there's also the counterpoint, well, maybe all these people... Um, didn't see Ziajar enter the 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 uh, the, uh, the cockpit because he actually is seated in one B. Well, how did they explain seeing all the three other hijackers? Remember, there's two hijackers in the cockpit and one outside the door. The guy outside the door is wearing a bomb belt. 
according to the audio, the audio that the families heard, they actually heard that guy being killed by the, the pastors revolting. So now, all right, there's one guy, he's dead. He has two people in the cockpit. That's three. With the fourth hijacker. Yeah. And that's why, that's why I wrote in that meeting article, the missing 9-11 hijacker. Okay, yeah. Now, I was just going to, the commission report does touch upon this. Right, it, it notes that several passengers in 1993 uh, describe only three hijackers. That's correct. Um, right. Some people speculated whether one of the hijackers had been able to use the cockpit jump seat as a trainee pilot. Uh, they don't think that's true. They think um, one of them, probably Ziar Jara, just remained in his seat calmly until and then just slipped into the, the cockpit. And um, it also talks about um, Jara responding to the uh, the uprising on the plane by rolling the airplane and, and um, to try to get people off balance. But it doesn't mention the fact that the um, the voice recorder picked up Saeed and not um, Ziad. Correct. Now, out of all four men, Ahmed Halznawi is the tallest, but they're all actually short men. Um, and that's one... Um, Sandra uh, Bradshaw, uh, flight attendant of Flight 93, states that um, that all three men were very short. Another flight attendant on on Flight 93, and she actually I'm, I actually should have uh, mentioned this before. There were six calls actually. Sandra uh, Bradshaw was one of the calls, and she's a flight attendant. She actually leaves um, a voice message, and she states that the three men were very short, and they're actually one of them is actually yelling. This is very interesting because it's not reported anywhere else. She actually states that one of the hijackers is actually exclaiming that they're trying to crash the plane at the U.S. Capitol. In the 9-11 Commission report, um, they're stating that they don't know where the plane was going. And that's true, too, because I think that's true because the Pentagon, actually, when they're uh, uh, when they're evacuating the Pentagon, they're saying another plane is actually, they don't know where that plane is going, actually. So nobody knows where the planes are going. But according to Sandra Bradshaw, yes, one of the hijackers states that they wanted to crash the plane into the U.S. Capitol and that everybody's going to die. Now, this is the only, this is important too, because this would be the reason why the pastors revolted anyway, right? Because if they knew that this was a, because flight, flight 11, nobody was, you know, fighting back or anything like that. And with 77 either. And um, that's only because they did, the, the hijackers didn't announce their declarations or their intentions. Flight 93, they did. According to flight 175, there's rumors saying that that was the case. I don't know if that's going to be true. I don't want to uh, speculate too deeply. I mean, I'm speculating enough, but uh, with, with Flight 93, that was the case. In fact, that's the only plane right now, as we speak, that had that legitimate uh, factual information where the hijackers um, had their intentions known. And according to 9-11 Commission 2, uh, Ziad Jara actually makes, you know, he, he, he um, uses the, um, the, cockpit, uh, the cockpit radio, and he states, I think, quote, if I want to do this correctly, um, it goes, I am the captain on board. Uh, we're going back to the airport, so please sit. Um, according to those who knew him in Florida, they were saying that, yes, the recording did sound like Jara, but they weren't too sure. Also, too, who also spoke English? Well, Saeed al-Gandhi actually spoke a little bit of English. Uh, Hasnawi spoke a little bit of English. Now, whether they did declarations or not, I don't know. Um, like I said before, um, we're, you know, this is speculation, but it's not delving into the fantastic, not too ridiculous. 
as opposed to what I'm using it, why I'm believing this is because I believe that the pastors only did see three hijackers. And I don't think that, um, you know, if you listen to the, uh, also to the ATC recording, which is available on YouTube, um, Leroy, Hol- uh, Leroy Homer, who's the first captain on board Flight 93, he actually, uh, under duress, I mean, he's getting, uh, either he's being uh, killed or he's, de- or he's being uh, rendered unconscious, he actually flips a switch at the side where it's, it's the record. It's the um, the ATC radio uh, uh, device where ATC is actually listening to the the plane being hijacked, and so you can hear Leroy Homer giving out the Mayday signal, not once but twice, and um, he says Mayday, Mayday, get out of here, quote unquote. He says get out of here. So is Ziad Jar is actually the only one, you know, he's actually being helped with uh, another hijacker hijacking the plane. Other people would have saw this, and they would have made the necessary. There was four hijackers, but they they all said three. Everybody said three. Six people said three hijackers. So that's what I'm basing my my information on. And also with the uh, the transcript recording of the person sitting next to Paul saying Saeed. Uh, sure, to sure. Um, there's so there's other reasons, right? Ziajara has an interesting family. Sure. Right. Um, yeah. The two of his cousins had different intelligence connections. One of them came out quite quickly afterwards to have worked for the East German intelligence uh, back in the day. And the other and perhaps more relevant one, I think, came out uh, was several years later. I think it was 2011. Uh, Ali Aljara, who was uh, also Lebanese, but worked for the Mossad, Israeli intelligence. And seemingly to um, quite a, a well, okay, to a level sufficient to earn him, um, let's just check. Yeah, it was from like three hundred thousand uh, dollars a year. He was paid as a spy for Mossad. So that's that's you know, unless Mossad paid disproportionately well compared to other agencies, that's quite some money. Um, so it's just quite close to home, right? The, I mean, I don't know how you want to maybe talk about this, Adam. That um, with is the Israelis monitoring the goings-on in of the Hamburg cell in Florida and the maybe the urban moving system angle and just how the, the close proximity of Ziajara having this um, Mossad relative and that maybe you can apply two different narratives to Jara that he on one narrative that he's the young man who gets radicalized and joins in Al-Qaeda's terrorist plot or is there the possibility that he was infiltrating and monitoring on behalf of an intelligence ag- agency maybe Mossad I think you hit the nail on the head. I think this is a little bit too close to home. Again, um, if we're going to delve into the background of his family, yes, there were two uncles. One, Asem Aljara. Asem Aljara has been a longtime spy for at least three governments, one of them including Israel, as far back as 1983, and actually had links to the um, the Lockerbie bombing. And I'll, I won't get into that. Uh, the second uncle, Ali Aljara, who was arrested in 2011, um, who was a Lebanese school administrator and had lived in the country uh, all his life. He was arrested by uh, Lebanese authorities, and he had been a spy for Israel for 25 years. He had a, no, he had a brother, Joseph Aljar, Ali Aljar, bro, brother Joseph, who was also impl- uh, suspected of being uh, uh, as well an Israeli spy, but not as long. Now, I'm not saying that Ziajar is an Israeli spy. What I'm going to imply here is basically what the 
your, your comment about being too close to home, but God is. In September 12th of 2001, one day after the 9-11 attacks, of uh, Irving Moving Systems van, which by the way, at this point had an all points bulletin, uh, uh, which was given earlier in the day of September 11th by the New York Joint Terrorism Task Force and the FBI, meaning that all local authorities in the United States would be on the lookout. Uh, in a town called York, Pennsylvania, which is about approximately, I think it, it was a hundred miles from um, Shanksville, but why I'm implying this is important. According, the truck was actually pulled over by Pennsylvania uh, sheriffs, uh, deputies, and they uh, detained two people. Uh, their names are Modi Butbul and Roy Barak. And these two individuals worked for Irving Moving Systems in Weehawken, New Jersey, the same uh, uh, company that had the five dancing Israelis, as the media called them, detained uh, in September 11th in, on New Jersey Turnpike. Why is this important? Well, when they detained Roy Barak and Modi Bupal, they explained uh, why they were in this area. And they said that they were moving a client from Chicago to New Jersey. Sheriff's deputies then handed over these men to the FBI. And the FBI actually called the manager of Irving Moving Systems, Dominic Suter. Dominic, and they explained that um, we have two of your uh, employees here in York, Pennsylvania. Uh, they were saying they were moving a client from Chicago to New York. Meanwhile, there's no furniture in the van. And Dominic Suter said specifically that he found that strange, quote unquote, strange. Why? Because he didn't have any clientele outside the state of New Jersey because of the attacks itself. And so the FBI decided to want to interview him a second time. They, they wanted to interview him a first time and he did, he complied. And when they wanted to interview a second time because of this incident, he flew back to Israel, leaving behind the company. John Miller of 2020 uh, did an expose on this and he's the only person that did an expose specifically on Irving Moving Systems, and it's hard to find the, the video interview, but when he, he got the keys to inside the, uh, the Irving Moving Systems, and it was all furniture. There was furniture for months and months and months of clientele. The, 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 he even showed a picture of the, the, the uh, voice messaging, and there were 99 plus messages. It was all from people who were complaining about where their furniture was. So in other words, uh, that these people weren't really moving people in the last like final month or two, um, it seems, because the warehouse was full of furniture and it was angry people demanding where their furniture was in regards to move. Um, but the story died right there on the vine. Now, what I'm implying here, what am I implying here anyway? Well, when FBI and other local uh, investigators were combing the area, now remember, the Flight 93 debris field is eight miles long. And there's conspiracies relating that the plane was shot down and that, you know, it left a long debris field. No, um, the debris field was basically paper because Flight 93 had 25,000 pieces of mail. And so because of the mail and the nylon and the clothing that was found on the plane was scattered uh, over a debris field of eight miles long. Yeah, it wasn't windy, but it doesn't take much wind 
to uh, throw a piece of paper, like a, a letter, um, you know, further down the road in 24 or 36 hours. So that's why the debris field was so long. And also, too, um, who knows? They, they, they found, remember, they find Zia Jara's passport, um, his ID card, in the, the rubble. But who knows where they exactly found it? Did they find it by the impact hole? Or did they find it in the wide debris field by Shankville? Because um, if you wanted to go this route and say uh, those two men who were detained by urban moving system, Roy Brock, Roy Popo, if they wanted to leave Ziajara's ID card in the debris field, yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, they could have burned it. And they could have left it in the wide debris field. That's speculation, right? I just want to be sad. But if you want to imply that that's what happened. And also, too, and, and also too if I could just interject here, yep. also, too, what, one of the, one of the, the, the uh, pieces of a mail that they found with Ziajara linking to, to 93 was a business card to Asim Eljar. Yeah. Uncle. And by the way, while his family disregards that Ziajara was on the plane, there was only one family member that state said, yes, he was on that plane. Asim Eljar. So when, I, when you say that, yeah, this is a little bit too close home, I, I absolutely agree with you. That's right. And the family um, said Asim Aljara makes things up to, for money, right? That's it, right. With regard to him saying, oh, yeah, Ziajara became radicalized. Right. No, nobody, nobody in the soul. And he had a very big family, by the way. And, and every single one. Now, of course, you'll have people that are in denial and say their son couldn't do this. But, I mean, I, even years later, when they even asked for the, um, the death certificate, uh, from Wally Miller, uh, who's in charge of the coronary. I mean, now it's the FBI. The FBI has it. But the family even states that um, uh, they were not giving any information. They tried at the U.S. Embassy in Lebanon to get more information about Ziajar, but they wouldn't give it to them. Well, there, there is DNA evidence putting him on the flight, isn't there? Sure. The yes. They, 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 Wally Miller collected, oh, if I, I'll make this short, they collected all the DNA evidence, 600 pounds of, approximately 600 pounds of human remains were recovered from the impact point. And that includes the four hijackers as well. Now, the, we don't know what kind of DNA they found, but supposedly DNA from all four of the hijackers. We don't know what DNA, what they found regarding the hijackers, but that's at the FBI headquarters. Now, FBI headquarters states that uh, the families themselves never came uh, and regarded the, the getting the death certificates because all the family states that they, uh, you know, that they don't believe that they were involved. I, I, you know, I happen to think that, you know, a lot of those families are in denial, hmm. but who knows? But well, just to be clear on, oh, on why Ziajara's family is saying that, is that sure. they say they never saw any signs whatsoever of radicalization going on, okay? So if someone's radicalized, you'd expect... It's okay, so you could say that's because, you know, um, they're keeping it quiet because they've got this covert op going on. But um, if someone's radicalized, you'd expect them to go through a phase of being very vocal about it and transforming sure. and then suddenly go quiet because they've got the secret operation they're taking part. And the, his family say they never saw anything like that. He was in constant contact. They actually don't accept that he went to Afghanistan, although it seems conclusive that he did go to Afghanistan. They talk about him never being out of phone contact for long enough. It would be hard for him to go to Afghanistan. And, and the other thing they bring up is that um, there's this strange trip he makes to New York prior to ever going to Germany, right? That there is a Ziajara living 
in New York in 1995 um, who rented an apartment. Um, the son of the owner also rented an apartment there and said they used to joke about him and his um, flatmate being strange, maybe involved in some kind of terrorist thing. Uh, he worked, he was a photographer there. And um, afterwards, when, when, after 9-11, when shown a picture of him, he was identified as, oh yeah, that's the guy. That's the guy that was in the apartment. They identified him. Um, but his family say that this is a difference. The Arjara can't, the, and, and point, they point out that as being evidence of some deeper covert op going on, because they say he was never out of the country. He was never out of Lebanon before going to Hamburg, Germany. So that's a very strange aspect to this story. Right. I, I, I don't think that Ziad Jar was actually in New York, the actual one, because at the time, even the father, uh, Salim, um, says that he was living in Lebanon at the time. I, sure, but then, then it's like it's another Ziad Jara that also acts suspiciously and looks exactly like the Ziad Jara. Right, exactly. That's what's strange. Right, and also, right, it leads more questions, you have more questions than answers, right, as to what was the uh, the Operation 9-11 known even for, as far back as then, and they tried to um, give Ziajara doubles elsewhere, outside, which would make sense if you want to have an insider, for example, like a Ziajara, to monitor the operations and make sure it goes smoothly, and also lend back the information to specific intelligence agencies, such as the Mossad itself, or the CIA, uh, or uh, the Saudi GID, if you want to have an actual insider into the operation itself. And that's what intelligence oper agencies do. Um, they don't need to be having fake planes or fake passengers or fake phone calls. All you need is to have the information before the operation happens, and you can manipulate the operation as to where the operation could go smoothly or without interference from local authorities like the FBI or from New York uh, Police Department or from the Florida, wherever state that these guys were living in. And that, they, you know, their backgrounds are clean and they can make it appear that these people weren't radical Islamists, which is what Ziajar was trying to display. But according to his background, that's not exactly what it was. And that's the reason why I wanted to bring up his earlier years, because he was living amongst Christians. He was living amongst Jews in the mm. Becca Valley, which is known to have this um, amalgamous, uh, almost this diverse population. Lebanon is home, by the way, to the largest Christian major uh, uh, population in all of the Arab world. Mm. Um, it's also home to Hezbollah. Hezbollah is considered the greatest enemy outside of Iran, or they link it together uh, more so than, say, the Salafis, who are you know the biggest terrorists of all. Uh, Hezbollah is not a Salafist organization. So what I'm trying to uh, uh, show you here is, uh, in regards to this podcast, was that showing you the background of Ziad Jara, which so many people within the, say, the debunkers or truth communities, where they just dismiss or they go with the official narrative that they dismiss the hijackers and say these guys never existed. I see. I think that's a big, uh, big uh, mistake. Go look at the backgrounds of certain people like Aziajar, Mama Hauta, with Ziajar here in his podcast, is that, yes, this guy grew up not as a terrorist at all or reading from the Quran. This guy was a secularist. He was friends with Jews and Christians. Hmm. Um, and when he gets right to Germany, what does he do? He goes right into the Islamist phase. I mean, two months, he's well, already visiting uh, these uh, Islamists. What, what I think we need to mention then is, like, if you look at all the uh, – young men working for an intelligence agency who are sent out to infiltrate radical mosques 
like Eamon Dean, perhaps, for the British, and Morton Storm for the, for the Danish, and so on. You can probably name other examples, or, or in other settings, you know, like um, infiltrating um, the IRA or something, uh, or any, anyone, any of these look care to mention. Um, Ziar Jara's actions would also be kind of consistent with that, right? Of someone who's not in any way radical, uh, who goes to live in Hamburg and just instantly gets involved in the most radical segments there, um, going to these extremist mosques and such. That you, you could posit like two reasons for that, and they both kind of work. That he's um, a young man who's like suddenly far from home and wants to cling to some kind of culture and goes down a very dark rabbit hole, or that he, through his family connections to Mossad, perhaps, um, is sent there with the mission of like, we really need to uncover what's going on in these mosques so you can be our eyes and ears on the ground. And it seems to me that both of those narratives kind of work for Jara. Would you agree with that? Or maybe you'd have some thoughts yourself on the examples of um, infiltrators? No, I, I would absolutely agree with that. And I, I think I would add it too, is that, um, you know, Kofor Black once said that he was appalled that we didn't have any contact within Al-Qaeda. So this way we could closely monitor them. I, 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 with all intelligence apparatuses like the CIA, Mossad, uh, the Saudi Jihad, the Pakistan NSA, these groups, these Al-Qaeda groups aren't hard at all to infiltrate. I mean, I, I happen to think that the, you know, the counterproductive, the counterargument was that, well, they didn't have Arab speakers at the NSA or, um, well, that's not the case with these Arab intelligence apparatuses. I mean, they, of course, they could easily infiltrate these groups and they can monitor it closely. And why wouldn't they? I mean, if you're going to yeah. uh, disperse, uh, destroy Al-Qaeda, you destroy it from within and not with just carpet bombing them in Afghanistan or Iraq. Yeah. Or, or, or you control it from within and keep the useful element of it around, right? But that, right, that, right. Get, I, I mean, it's, this is something that I found very hard to get my head around. And even in conversations with people somewhat on the inside, it doesn't become any clearer for me, this, this idea that, um, that the CIA was unable to infiltrate Al-Qaeda when you have thousands of Americans going across and joining Mujahideen groups in Bosnia, et cetera, through the 90s, going through the um, Al-Qaeda Center in, in New York. And as you say, Adam, that, that's the harder part, right? Because how, how much easier, there's no cultural divide that stops the Egyptian intelligence or the Saudi intelligence infiltrating. So you kind of assume it must have, it must have happened. And when you do read accounts of people doing this, um, it doesn't appear to be, it never comes across as something that is unreplicable, you know, like Eamon Dean um, and Morton Storm as two um, infiltrators, if you read their accounts, very, very quickly, they were right at the heart of things. And that seems to be the case of the Hamburg cell too, that they, they go to Afghanistan and they're meeting bin Laden straight away. And, um, it, and, and they're chosen very quickly for Al-Qaeda's most high profile operation, you know? So it's not like they had to spend years working their way up to get the trust to be on the inside. Right, I wanted to bring that up too. I thought that was very important as to how uh, a group like Al Qaeda could be uh, couldn't be compromised because of their internal security. Yeah, I think they have internal security, but I'll give you a great example of what you just uh, implied just now. Um, Ahmed, I mean, Mohammed Atta, Mohammed Al Sheikh, and Ziad These are young uh, students from Germany. They don't have long uh, careers in, in any type of mujahideen terrorist actions. These are relative newcomers. They don't know much about them. 
other than what Mark Moon, Abdar Gonzali, and Mohammed Haidar Zamar, two known uh, 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 terrorist contacts who have years and years of dealing with um, terrorist organizations abroad and who groomed these people. I mean, they went right to Afghanistan and they met with the first person they met was Mohammed Atef, who's the military commander in chief. And the second person they met was not Ahmed al-Zawahiri, but Osama bin Laden himself. Hmm. So, I mean, what I'm trying to say is that they, you know, right away they, they, they go to Afghanistan. The first week, they meet with two of the most important people within al-Qaeda. It, it seems to me that it doesn't take much to meet with these people if you just have a, uh, a very unexperienced background in dealing with uh, – al-Qaeda subjects uh, elsewhere. Um, if you go by the testimony of, of uh, Slahi and bin Shabib, and which I told you to take with a grain of salt, you would think that these guys, uh, you know, were told the whole world about the whole operation itself, up and down. Uh, why would you trust these guys? I mean, these are relative newcomers. So, I mean, it would, in other words, um, for the intelligence apparatus abroad, in the Arab world, it would be, uh, you know, a cakewalk mm. for them to infiltrate groups like Al-Qaeda or Abu Sayyaf or the Islamic State uh, groups now that are relevant. But yeah, I mean, these large-scale groups like this, um, groups that have like an international threat, you damn well better believe that the intelligence apparatuses are infiltrating these groups. I mean, they infiltrate uh, domestic organizations like uh, Occupy, Occupy Wall Street, or um, uh, any other yeah, green... Yeah, well, you know, the British were infiltrating, like, green peace activists during right. the 90s right. who were blocking roads being built, you know, and, and um, that was what Special Branch were up to. So people who were, you know, I mean, they might stop a road being built, but they're not going <laughs> to blow up London or something, you know? <laughs> so... Right. It's been, and, and also, example, like, an example that comes to mind is the... Um, the British soldier who goes by the name of uh, Kevin Fulton, who infiltrated the IRA, his handlers in MI5 were going to have him executed, basically, by the IRA to protect a, a higher source. Now, had that happened, or had he died in any operation, he would forever be known as uh, an IRA volunteer. He would, they would never have revealed that he was working for the British Army. Okay, so, like, people who were... It's just a given then that there must be people who die on these operations who are actually working for state intelligence agencies, and we never know that they all they go down in history as being um, as being terrorists. Collateral damage. Yeah. So, like, I mean, I don't feel I can conclude one way or the other with ZRJR or what was going on there. Only that there are a sufficient number of anomalies to say, well, we're really not comfortable with with the story as it's told. And, yeah. You know, his family have a have a case there. Um, but uh, who knows really what went on? So, right, because the only story we've gotten is from the 9/11 Commission report, They're the mm. only uh, independent commission report that dealt with the Hamburg cell joint house inquiry dealt with the intelligence agents. But where did this information come from? Well, it came from the testimonies of Abu Zubaydah, Ramzi bin Al Sheib, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and other Al Qaeda subjects are in Guantanamo currently. Um, that have all been waterboarded, tortured, uh, especially the information coming out of Afghanistan, okay? That the, 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 Atta, Bin Shabib, Ziajar, Mawan al Shay all went to these um, uh, training camps, whom, by the way, were un, uh, inoperable after the 9-11 attacks, because that's what 
the, the military went to Afghanistan to destroy these training camps, but they were already, they were already non-functional uh, before they even went there. Um, but the testimony coming out of there is coming from the subjects in which they've been tortured. So that's why I say that to take that information to grain of salt, and um, it's also contradictory to the people who knew these people personally, especially mm. Ziad Jar, who all claimed that he never went to Afghanistan. And um, that's why I felt that this podcast was a little bit important and that, um, you know, I want to, you know, say straight out too, you know, I'm not saying that Ziad Jarrah worked for Israeli or Israeli intelligence, but, uh, you know, I, again, I'll use your quote that, yes, it's a little bit too close to home for me as well uh, in regards to the, his family being um, involved with uh, many years, even decades uh, regarding Israeli intelligence and intelligence agencies of Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Lebanon, uh, and Syria as well. That's that's um, El Jara, right? going back to 1983. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, his family's filled with intelligence apparatus. So who do you believe? Well, I'll leave it up to you, the listener. I'll let you believe. But believe, not because it fits your worldview, but because of the evidence that's presented. Okay, Adam, I think, you know, we could probably go on for quite a while about this but we probably should conclude sure. there and um where will we go next i mean it'd be interesting to look at mohammed atwell maybe at some point we've got more interviews coming up um maybe we've, we've touched on urban moving systems you might talk about that at some point but yeah um be very interesting anyone's comments on on the ajara and uh what we've touched on in this episode and yeah okay great thank you very much richard thank you adam see you soon <laughs>